Are you a scaling SaaS founder? Ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel Podcast, where our founders are like a band of treasure hunters, passionate, resourceful, and eternally optimistic, despite the muddy detours. Anybody else find scaling a company is a messy process? I'm your host, Jeff Maines. I hope B2B SaaS founders like you scale from seven figures, which is good, to eight and nine figures, which is outstanding. Together, we supercharge revenue growth, create premium valuation, and craft a business you're proud of and a life of impact and freedom that you love. You would probably have to have been living under a rock the last decade if you haven't heard of Oak Island. The Curse of Oak Island has been a hit TV show for the History Channel for 10 seasons, and season 11 is coming. Now, if you're not familiar, There is an island in the North Atlantic where people have been looking for an incredible treasure for over 200 years. So there's believed to be a treasure vault filled with untold riches buried on the island. And it's protected by unbelievable layers and booby traps and a whole bunch more. The show documents a team's search for the treasure. And like I said, 10 seasons, lots of artifacts and things that should be there and a lot of things that shouldn't be there. But no big treasure cache yet, I suppose, maybe in season 11, eh? I'm a sucker for a good treasure legend. How about you? I mean, tell me that at some point in your life, you didn't want to be Indiana Jones or Jack Sparrow or maybe Alan Quartermain. But imagine you found a hidden treasure chest, got it out without the cave collapsing around you. But instead of opening it up, you took it home and turned it into a coffee table. It's a great statement piece in the living room, and you can put your feet on it. It's pretty good. I mean, kick back, prop your feet up, and think strategy, right? Well, I'm all about having some focused thinking time. That ain't what a treasure chest is for. Well, your company's data is pretty much the modern-day equivalent of a treasure chest. But unlike those unlucky Oak Island searchers all those years trying to solve the mystery, 200 years! You've got tools they've never had, like cutting-edge AI to do your mining. It's like the, the Willy Wonka golden ticket of business success. But many companies treat it like it's just another part of the furniture. So what does it look like to open up that treasure chest and pull out the gold? You ever heard of a company called Stitch Fix? They are a fashion company that's got algorithms and stylists working side by side to turn raw data into fashion statements. Notice it's tech with people. They use AI to sort through consumer preferences, past purchases, and even weather patterns. I mean, how about that? It's like having a super-powered Sherlock Holmes telling you not just who did it, but why, and predicting with scary accuracy, in this case, what they'll want to wear next season. And it's really a pretty cool service. If you see me out and about and I'm not wearing a black t-shirt and jeans, but look kind of styling, it's probably either Stitch Fix or my wife who dressed me. Uh, you know, it's just one of those things I'm not great at, but, you know, find people around you who are great at things that you're not. And, uh, and both of those have been really, really helpful. So how do we get the treasure out of the data that's in your business? Here's a quick three-step plan for striking gold with your data. 
First, what we want to do is to embrace the tech. Imagine AI as your personal prospector, panning through the mountains of data to find those nuggets of customer insight. And if you're not exactly sure what insight to look for, AI excels at pattern recognitions. Start there. Now, what patterns emerge in the data set that you have? And ask questions, query that data set just like you would, you know, asking a friend questions and see what comes out. What we're looking for is, you know, what are those patterns? Uh, finding those nuggets, those customer insights. Second, what we want to do is move faster than a cat chasing a laser pointer. With AI on your side, decision making goes from best guess to next level informed. You're no longer just shooting from the hip. You're taking calculated data back shots that really hit the mark more often than not. And the more you do it, the, the better and better it gets. But the value is in your action. So take that action. And finally, never stop iterating. Think of AI like a, a sparring partner, you know, making you better and better, pushing you to tweak, adjust, and improve your strategy. The thing is, right now, many of your competitors are still using paper maps and compasses out there looking for their treasure. Be the one with GPS-guided drones scouting the terrain for you. Because the advantage you have right now is not going to last long. So you're ready to tap into your data treasure chest and leave those best guess methods in the dust? I think it's adapt or be outpaced. Our founder on today's episode helps companies like yours mine and extract this digital gold. With the right guidance, it's actually way easier than I thought it would be. If you could use a treasure guide on your SaaS adventure, check out today's sponsor, Champion Leadership Group, the ultimate resource for SaaS founders and C-suite executives to continue to develop themselves, scale their companies, and never walk alone on their SaaS journey. Supercharge revenue by leveraging our time-tested SaaS growth principles, toolkits, playbooks, and frameworks designed to help you scale ARR from seven to eight to nine figures. Collaborate with an elite network of SaaS visionaries as we up-level ourselves, our teams, and really have some fun along the way. Confidently take the right next step that turns into a quantum leap of profitable growth, premium valuation, and freedom. Learn more at championleadership.com. Last Thursday on our SaaS Fuel Expert Series, my guest was visionary serial entrepreneur and idea guy, Eric Holsclaw, founding partner and chief strategist at Liger. We talked about how your SaaS company can become known for all the right reasons and strategies behind that. If you feel like the world's best kept secret, that episode is absolutely for you. And our founder on Tuesday was Alexander DeRitter, co-founder, visionary, and CTO at Inc. Alexander has been deep in AI solutions for a number of years, crafting magical tools for web marketing. Alexander and I went down the rabbit hole of AI versus humans and how and why of decision makings for both AI and people. And he made some pretty cool predictions about the future as well. If you missed either one of those episodes, go back and give them a listen. My guest today is Shanif Danani, founder and CEO of Locusive. He's the former co-founder and CEO of Aptio, and before that, an integral part of the success of Tap Commerce, one of the world's first mobile advertising platforms that was acquired by Twitter. 
Shaniv combined his software development and data science expertise to launch Locusive, which helps businesses connect their internal data and proprietary systems to ChatGPT, so mine their gold. Locusive enables executive leaders, team members, customers, and other stakeholders to reap the benefits of using large language models on their own data. Less searching, more finding. Welcome a real-life data treasure hunter, Shanif Danani. Hey, Shanif, welcome to SaaS Fuel. Hey, Jeff, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's great, and I'm looking forward to the chat. Well, tell me about Locusive. What is that all about? Oh, I love it. Yeah, jump right in. Um, well, I think a little bit of context might help. So everybody knows ChatGPT is this thing, right? Yeah. And so, you know, it's the thing, but what, what the heck actually is it? Um, well, it helps you create text. It helps you write stuff. But what's also cool about it is it's one of the first machines that can actually think logically and, and reasonably. And so businesses have started to want to use ChatGPT for their own internal operations. They want it to do everything from uh, build customer chatbots that their customer success team can use to offload work to running large amounts of workflows to chatting. Now, the problem with ChatGPT is it doesn't have access to any of your business data. Right. And a lot of that, you know, a lot of that data is protected and you have to sign in to use it. So Locusive just connects your business data to the chat apps that you want to build. Uh, essentially, we've got the ability to connect anything from like a Salesforce account or a Google Drive or a Google Sheets and hook it up to ChatGPT so you can build your own chatbots. And we're starting to expand and doing things like building chat-enabled workflows and all sorts of stuff. So we're a software company, and really what we do is we help you connect your data to uh, ChatGPT or other large language models. Hopefully that makes sense. Yes, yes, it does. And so you shouldn't load security keys into ChatGPT. Is that fair to say? You probably couldn't <laughs> even do it if you wanted to, right? Like, So yeah, you, you shouldn't, first of all. But right, you probably right. couldn't even use that if because they just they're not built for that, and so that's yeah. where our software comes in. Oh, that's very good, and I love that you know, it's internal and proprietary. And so, you know, what are the benefits of doing an integration like that? Getting that uh, you know internal proprietary data, making it your own instead of just you know the general model. There's a few things you know. If you go to the Chat GPT general model, you can ask it to write an outline for you, and you can ask it to do an email draft, but it's not going to be able to know the, the context of your business and it's not going to be able to know exactly what it should be responding. So one of the use cases that we help with is let, let's say you're a sales guy for, I don't know, a, a software company that helps restaurants. You might be on a call with a restaurant and they might say, well, how do you, you know, how does your product allow me to handle chargebacks, for example? And you as a sales guy should know this, but you might not. So what do you do? Well, you say, well, let me get back to you and you get back to them in a day or you quickly mute yourself and you go ask your colleague or you type a message to somebody in your team. Right. It's all sort of friction. But if you use a tool that's connected to your documents, you can just chat to a chatbot that has access to your data. You can say, hey, how do we handle chargebacks? And the tool will respond back in 30 or 40 seconds so that you can then get back to the customer. So that's one benefit. You know, It allows you as an internal team to get answers that that are relevant for a particular point in time. But it also allows you to do things like if you're a business owner and you want to offload a lot of the work that your customer success team has, you can build a chatbot that's connected to the same documents that your CSM team has and just let your users ask their own questions. And that might reduce the number of tickets you have, sometimes by quite a bit, 50, 60, 70%. So you're saving time 
uh, you're reducing the amount of time it takes for your employees to get the information they need. <clears throat> you're helping your customers out. And a lot of times by building tools that integrate with your data, you can actually offer a brand new offering that generates revenue. So there's a lot of interesting things that I'm helping businesses do, or at least that I'm seeing them do. Um, sort of runs the gamut because of how powerful this tool is. Sure. So how did you get into that? Is your background technical or something else? Yeah, I've, I, you know, I probably should have mentioned I'm a data geek. So I've been doing software and AI for like, I don't know, 15 years now. Um, I've been in the world of data for a long time. Started a, you know, helped start a company that was doing uh, ads for mobile apps when mobile apps were first, you know, becoming a thing. We were handling like a million ads a second. So I had helped build up that tech. Then I did something similar at Twitter where we were using AI to figure out how to serve an ad. I got tired of ads. So then I went and did that stuff for e-commerce. I started using uh, AI to help e-commerce people serve better marketing campaigns. And then I found myself doing this for ChatGPT stuff because everybody sort of wanted to use their data with ChatGPT, which they weren't able to. So sort of the continuation of my career. But uh, as far as like this particular use case, I started just consulting with companies to understand what they wanted. Almost every company wanted this. And so I started building out a product around it. Love that. And the, the product is Locusive. Is that correct? That is the product, yeah. you know, that's, that's the name of the company. And also the, the product itself, our product has a couple of different features. It's got a chatbot, it's got an API. Uh, we're building a couple other things as well. Very nice. So background, software development, data science. I mean, how do you ensure that the systems that you build are, are robust and reliable when you're integrating with chat GPT? And is that something that's a, a big concern? It's, it's a huge concern. And that's, that's actually why, yeah, I mean, businesses, you probably heard some businesses even even ban their custom their employees from using ChatGPT because yes. you know they don't want their data getting out there or they don't want secure things getting out there. So there's a few things that that I take into account. So one is data security. You know you want to make sure that the person who's um, giving you access to their data that data doesn't leak to other people. So making sure you're keeping track of permissions. So for example, if somebody asks, "Hey, what's my pay? What's my salary?" because they've plugged in a salary document. You don't want that to be available to other people, or you have to make it clear that, hey, anything you upload here will be available to anybody. So data security is a thing. You have to make sure you're managing permissions and enabling users to have granular level permissions. Um, privacy is a thing. So you want to make sure that one yeah. company doesn't have access to another company's data and that individual information isn't accessible. And then what's interesting about what I do is you might have heard that some companies don't want ChatGPT to use their data for training itself. You know, ChatGPT learns by yeah taking in information and then uh, seeing what the next set of information was, so it can learn how to respond. Well, if you go to ChatGPT's website, you can ChatGPT and OpenAI have said we can use whatever you give us to train our model. But if you send us data from our API, then we won't use your data and we won't retain it for more than thirty days. So my tool uses the API to ensure that companies. Uh, data doesn't end up in the hands of ChatGPT where they don't want it to be. So there's all of these little things that go into building a, a system that enterprises are ready for that ChatGPT doesn't provide out of the gate. And so from my perspective, security, privacy, um, these are all things that I started building into the product from the, from the start because companies really want this information. Uh, they really want these features. So how much of a, a security risk do you think there there really is versus perceived risk? I think every company looks at risk in their own lens. You know, obviously sure. the big companies have these giant teams of lawyers 
and regulators and you know, all these folks who are really worried about risk, for them, the risk is going to be higher. You know, if your source code gets in the hands of the chat GPT system or something goes wrong, the risk to you is bigger. That being said, there's not, there's a very sort of fine line between what's the likelihood of something like that happening. And if you don't let people use chat GPT, are you blocking their, their productivity? So I don't, you know, there's always a risk. Let's put it that way. There's always a risk and you always have to be aware and, and cautious. I think the risk though is more along the lines of legal and IP, uh, legal and IP protection when it comes to chat GPT more than it is getting hacked or a virus getting downloaded onto your system. So the risk of you giving away IP accidentally or making it available to people who shouldn't have it is not negligible. But I would say if you do things the right way, it's insignificant. And if you're a smaller company, maybe the risk isn't as big of a deal. You know, let's say you give away some information that's on a Google sheet. Well, you know, does it really matter? So the risk to smaller companies is a little bit lower, uh, still there. You still have to make sure people are logging in correctly, that they're accessing their data correctly. But it's one of those things where smaller businesses are looking more forward to the benefits. And so for them, it's okay to connect a lot of their data to ChatGPT. So it's a long way of me saying, it's a nuanced question and every company sure. looks at it differently. And I try to work with every company to make sure they're happy with, with what they're getting. Yeah. And, and in your consulting and working with ChatGPT, what are some things that have been surprising or unexpected um, that you've, you've learned as a model yeah. and implemented? There, you know, as a, as a data geek, I kind of understand how this stuff works. Um, a lot of people are like, hey, can I just ask ChatGPT to add five numbers together? And why am I not getting the right answer? Well, it turns out ChatGPT sucks at math. And, <laughs> Which is know, so surprising. Yep. Yep. And that's surprising for a lot of people. Now, it was originally surprising to me. But when you look at the way that it works, ChatGPT is essentially predicting the next set of words that it should be outputting. And for, for it to do that well... It can't also, or it isn't, at least right now, it isn't also being uh, training itself on how to do math. When you see the number nine for ChatGPT, that's just like looking at a letter, like that's looking at the letter T or something similar. So it's not, it's just not well uh, organized for math. So a lot of times you might ask it to add a bunch of numbers and it's going to give you the wrong answer. A lot of times it's just going to make up stuff. This is called a hallucination. So this is something that, you know, originally surprised me when I started looking into this both the idea of hallucinations as well as a can't do math. Uh, but when you get used to it, you say, okay, I know how to work around it. Those are one of, that's one thing. The other thing, which is sort of unfortunate is you just, you can't really provide it a lot of, of data. So chat GPT is limited to a few thousand words yeah. uh, in terms of what you provide it. And some of its competitors are a little bit larger, maybe by two or three times, but you're not going to be able to provide it an encyclopedia and say, Hey, what's on page 55 provide me a summary of that because it, it just can't take in all that information. So less, not necessarily surprising, but sort of a, a, another thing you have to work around. Um, and then when it comes to people, you know, the expectations that people have around this thing are, are through the roof. They're like, oh, this is a general generative AI. It should be able to do my job for me. Like I should just be able to give it one command and it does three weeks worth of work. <laughs> and that's not the case at all, right? Like I right, like to right. say- ChatGPT is good for tasks, but it sucks at jobs, right? Like you tell yes. it to summarize something, great. You tell it to create a, you know, uh, you tell it to take your summary, send an email, uh, double check it, edit it, and ask your sister to proofread it. Well, it's going to not know what the heck to do. So it's really good as a tool, 
But a lot of people who've never used it or who aren't familiar with what it is think it's like a, a whole robot that can do whatever they want it to do. Yeah. Which is not the case. true. Yeah. Yeah. So is the character limitation, is that something that, uh, that you get around by working with a company like Locusive? Or is that always a, a limitation of how much knowledge it has in order to, to make decisions or predict that next thing? Yeah, yeah. So our company allow, builds the software to let you work around that. So how does that actually happen? Well, you're not going to get around the character limit, but you can get around the types of information that you give within that character limit. So let's say you're building a Q&A system uh, or a system that just lets your customers ask questions from your product documentation. Now, if you've got a thousand pages of product documentation, you can't say to ChatGPT, uh, hey, here was my customer's question and here's all the context. Please answer the question from the context. Can't do that because that's just too much information. But you can say, hey, here was my customer's informa- uh, question. Here are the 30 paragraphs across all of my documents that probably have the answer somewhere. Using these paragraphs, provide an answer to my customer. And if the information is not in the uh, in the paragraphs, just say you don't know. So what Locusis technology does is it fi- it helps you find those thirty paragraphs. It helps you send the question to ChatGPT using those thirty paragraphs, and it provides you an answer. And if it doesn't find the answer, what we can do is well, we can say, well, we couldn't find the answer. Let's fall back to a search engine, or let's look at these other fifty paragraphs that maybe weren't as good but could have the answer, or let's find the answer in a in a different location. And all this happens automatically. So you as a user can just type your question without having to do all this manually. I like that. And then does it learn? So if it doesn't have the answer now, is that something that you can create? Because I know I didn't have the answer so I can create it. And now we've got one paragraph to reference instead of 50. Yeah, I get this. I guess this question a lot. And I think this is another misconception. So if you ask a question and then it comes back with an answer, it's not going to remember that answer. It's not going to learn from it the next time you have a question. Um, especially if you start a brand new chat with it. If you start the same chat and that message is in the chat history, it will be able to look at that old history and pull out the information. But yeah, ChatGPT doesn't learn from your questions and answers. You can make it learn. There's this thing you can do called fine tuning, which is where you provide it lots and lots of examples of data from your company. And then you can fine tune it so that it remembers this, uh, these data points and these examples. But that's really hard to do. And I generally recommend most people don't do it. So the fact that it doesn't learn is kind of a, a good thing for Locusive because every time you ask a question that can be answered from a, from a document or a tool, you need to provide the context from that document or tool. That gets really tedious. So our software will do that automatically. And so I guess not learning is sort of a good thing for us right now, but it would be cool if it did learn. You know, I bet you they're going to get there. It's just a matter of like, when are they going to do it? And is that a priority for them? Right. And then what's the the computing power and the cost of, of all that exactly. storage of, you know, what does the, the universe of knowledge consist of? It's big, you know? So I think they, they said that they chart, they used like a hundred million dollars to, to train chat GPT on the internet's data. And they're spending a lot of money now to, to respond to users queries. And so if you were to try to get your own sort of chat GPT and train it on your own data, you might have to spend a lot of money. Um, what's cool is chat GPT, like I said, they let you fine tune, which is where you provide examples. That's not as bad. You don't have to run the compute cost yourself, but it does take a lot of work um, from chat GPT side as well as from your side, because you have to prepare a thousand examples or so. So there's a lot of work that goes into all of this stuff. Uh, you know, I'll say that I've been working yeah. on Locusive a long time now. 
thousands and tens of thousands of lines of code and it's it's still sort of in beta so there's a lot to be done that's good nothing is easy it just looks yeah. easy from the outside because there's so much work that happens behind the scenes they, they say the best products are the ones that you can forget about because you don't need to worry about them they get out of your way and yeah. the best products to make them easy to forget about takes take a lot of work um so yeah it's it's nothing's easy that's for sure so how do you navigate the balance between you know, big language models and ensuring they don't necessarily replace human expertise or, or intuition in decision-making? Or should they I be think, used? Yeah. It's one of those things where there's, there's a few things to think about here. I think that for really important decisions, like I was just on a panel with a guy who's working with the DOD, and they're using AI for that. And his his point was, look, even if an AI can make a decision, you should run it by a human. And so I think if you're in really high stakes, um, high stakes situations, you should probably have a human review any major decision that an AI does. But if you're trying to, for example, predict an ad, like predict who's going to click on an ad, or if you're going to try to say, well, what's the answer to what's the weather tomorrow? It doesn't matter if a human's in the loop. And so the way that I look at this is, can you automate away things that are tedious low stakes, take a lot of time for no reason. If so, then you should just have an AI do that. And that's sort of where the low use of technology comes in. If you're in a higher stakes situation and people are going to get hurt, or if there's something that's a really big deal, if it goes wrong, then you should probably have a human in the loop. And an AI is never going to have all the context it needs to make an optimal decision, like a human might. And so you should probably just defer to the human uh, to make those really big decisions as well. So where does the decision scale fall with things like self-driving cabs? That's something that, you know, been in that the news here recently. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because you can start to create these self-driving cars who are, who, who work like 90 to 95% of the time. Right. But I think, I think the reason we haven't seen them take off is because that 5% of the time where they see something they haven't seen before, or they mistake, uh, you know, a truck for a trash can or something like that. It's one of those things where you, we as data scientists and AI researchers m might have started to figure out how do we deal with these, but we haven't really done a good job of doing that at scale. And you don't want to make a car, you don't want to have a car make a bad decision. And so right. I think you kind of have to start slow. I think you're starting to see these cars being rolled out in certain cities. A lot of times they used to have drivers in the front seat. Now you're starting to see them get good enough where they don't need drivers. But I think you're going to need to start seeing a lot more reliability and robustness from them. So it's a long way of me saying, I think the stakes are high. I also think people are working at getting the software and the technology to a point where you can do a good job with, with these things in the majority of the time and the, the risk might be lowered over time. And if we get to a point where the risk is significantly lowered and it's reliable, then you can start to talk about putting these things uh, onto the roads everywhere. But I do think you have to start somewhere, and that's where we're looking at right now. Sure, sure. So what are some of the, the challenges and limitations you've encountered uh, incorporating chat GPT into different businesses and their systems, whether they be up-to-date or maybe even legacy systems? There's, I think there's, there's difficulties that are sort of fundamental to chat GPT, and there's decisions that are, are just you know, things that are um, fundamental to what I'm doing. So when you look at chat GPT, you might be surprised to know that if you ask it the same question with the same data, there's like a, a one to 5% chance it's not going to answer the same, the same way every single time. 
So this is what's what we call like a stochastic model. It's it's a little bit random. And there's a challenge when you work with that. So if you say to ChatGPT, hey, you need to answer in this format, just one line with these three things. And then 99% of the time it does that. But then sometimes it says, final answer, colon, one of those three things. Your software is going to need to have to deal with that. And so that's one of the challenges I've had to deal with. Other challenges are how do you build all of the integrations that can deal with businesses data wherever it lives? For example, people have information in Slack. They have information in their email accounts. They have information in Google Drive and they have information in offline documents. So how do you know what data people want to be able to connect and how you should read that data and how you should refresh it? All of these data management things are are a little bit challenging. Uh, So that's one thing I run into. And I would say um, one of the things I am trying to do is make sort of this universal business assistant that lets you do anything from looking up data to writing emails to scheduling coffee. That's a big task and it needs to be done in chunks. And so just being able to do the right thing at the right time has also been a little bit challenging and that's where good customers come in. I love that. So I will be able at one point to just be able to say, go make coffee and and it'll happen. I think we're getting there. I think we might still be be a a few years away. That'd be a great day. I think, you know what? I think we're getting there. I can easily see how to do it. I can build the product to do it. I don't think I'd have a lot of customers for it right now, but I think we're going to have that one day. Yeah, that would be that would be a, a great use of technology. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I don't know if you remember back in the day, they talked about this Internet of Things. Yes. Uh, you, your coffee machine might have an API at some point, and my tools might be able to say, ChatGPT, what does it mean when he says, go make coffee? Well, it says, okay, plug into the coffee machine, run this API command, and then return the results. I can already do that. I do that for Google Sheets. But yeah, it's a long way of me saying, I think you're going to start to see things have APIs. I think you're going to start to see everything start to get connected and start to be a lot more automated than what we have today. And and I think you're right, because I am seeing that. I mean, even like if the refrigerator is left open or freezer, I get a a text message, which I mean, that's that's crazy. Uh, you know, you have appliances and you can connect to them and they'll tell you, you know, what's wrong with them. Yep. That, uh, you know, they'll give you an error code and give you an explanation. So there's there's a lot of really yep. cool things that have, have happened. There are. And I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg, especially when it comes to this uh, generative AI stuff. So I'm really excited. Sometimes it feels like I'm working in a bubble where the only people I know are also doing Gen AI. And then I talk to people outside the bubble and they're like, what, what are you talking about? So, that, so I think we're early, but but it is really interesting. It is. So how do you think generative AI is going to change search and, uh, and, and what that experience is like in, in finding companies, finding brands and engaging? Yeah, you've already started to see it, right? Like Bing has plugged in generative, generative AI tools with search for the past 20 years. We've all been conditioned to type in a certain set of keywords that we think that the search engine is going to pick up on, browse through the first five or six results, like what I'll do is I'll actually open up the first five results all at once and then go through them really quickly to see if my answer is there, which is fine. But I think when you've got something like generative AI, you can type in a command and it'll get you the answer right away. It'll show you where that answer came from and it'll say, do you want to learn more? Uh, Hey, here's some additional information. When we get really advanced, it will say, oh, well, you search for the weather. Do you want me to order you a parka because you don't have something? So like we're going to get to a point where machines are doing a lot more for us. Uh, specifically for search, what I'm doing, I think I'm a little bit biased, but what I'm doing is connecting your private data to a search tool that can also reach out to public data 
and provide you a single information that's sort of cited with, with the source. So I think search is going to be a lot more seamless. I think it's going to be able to do a lot more with a lot simpler user interface, which means you as a searcher, you're going to have to do a lot less. Um, we'll see. I think we're going to get there. I think we're still very early days yet, but I think search is going to be a lot more seamless than it is today. Uh, I think that's absolutely right. Is that going to make it more or less challenging for new brands to to break in and and, and find their way? It's funny. I did a lot. It's, when I when I hear the word brand, I, I used to do a lot of work in the world of e-commerce, and you know, a physical product has its own challenges than a than a software product. So let's sure. talk about maybe the differences. If you're a physical product. Um, Breaking in is, is kind of tough. You have to do a lot of prototype, a lot of manufacturing. But if you find something people like, it's it's straightforward to scale it. Finding something people like is the hard part. And I think AI might be able to help with that, but that's still a lot of human-to-human connection. It's a lot of understanding human needs and developing human products. But when you're talking about SaaS and software, there's this idea that you can make things really quickly, try it out really quickly, figure out something that works, double down on it. I think doing that, I think the world of search and AI is going to provide a lot of uh, new things out there that maybe don't do a whole lot. Uh, there's going to be a lot of noise in terms of new things that are coming to market. And I think that consumers or even business uh, buyers who are looking for tools are going to have to do a lot of sifting through the noise. And building a brand that allows you to rise above that is going to be really crucial. But building that brand is going to be hard. It's going to be uh, a lot of content, but it, the content has to be valuable. It has to be authentic. It can't be these LLM generated long form posts that don't say anything. Um, it's going to be building relationships with people. It's going to be getting referrals from customers. So there's a lot more human elements, I think, that's going to have to come into play for a brand to build itself up because it's going to be so easy for brands to come into, into the market now. So should we be writing content for humans or bots? You know, the old way was kind of, you know, a lot of people keyword stuffing and SEO and really writing for bots instead yeah. of the humans. And there was the shift. But now it seems like there's a lot more bots that are, are reading that content and summarizing. And what do we do? That's a great question. I'll tell you <laughs> what I do. You know, I, I post on social media three times a day and I try to post like really high value content. Sometimes people ask me, well, are you using ChatGPT to write your content? I say, no, I've not written a single social media post with ChatGPT because it is garbage. It's generic, but it's long. It's saying a lot by not saying anything. And it has nothing to do with what my what my readers want to see. So I'm writing for people. Uh, I'm writing for people first. I do the same with sort of long form content. I try to be as helpful as I can be. And I think that if... If your goal is to build relationships with the hopes of building a customer base, you kind of have to write for the consumer or the people who are, who are your buyers. And right now, the people are the buyers. Maybe there's a world where AI is a buyer in the long term, but I think that the content is a very human thing when it's being consumed. And so I, I write for people and I write for the buyers who I'm trying to reach. Yeah, I think that's that's always the answer. And it's, it's yeah. interesting talking to, to different people and just, you know, different perspectives. But I think, you know, at the end, it, it is about the people and people are going to be the ones that ultimately make purchase decisions, particularly in, uh, in software. And so, That's you know, making sure that that content is out there, that it's valuable. And when you provide that value, you educate them, you kind of bring them up to speed on, on what's going on in the world and share your perspective. I think people appreciate that. 
They do. And they, they like to connect with the writer. They like to feel like they're not being sold to. So I've yeah. learned you just give, you know, give as much as you can. And then when people need what you're offering, they'll be, you'll be the first one that they think about. So what are maybe some potential risks or ethical considerations that businesses should be thinking about as they adopt um, large language models like ChatGPT? I think the first thing is, you know, just make sure that what you're getting out is accurate. Uh, I read a story about a lawyer the other day who used ChatGPT. Uh, you probably have heard this. Yes, yes. Come up with, with precedents of case laws that he could use in his <laughs> argument. And it just made up 10 cases that never existed. And he presented this as fact. And the judge was like, what are you doing? Um, and, the con like, you know, it's one of those things where hallucinations or the ability to make up answers is a really big risk. So businesses need to be aware of that. Businesses need to be aware that uh, these chatbots, while as smart as they are, still are chatbots. And so you might still need to have a, a way to connect with a human. For example, if you're doing customer success or customer service and the chatbot can't answer the question, you might still need a way to um, put people in touch with other people. So risks are, you know, hey, look, this chatbot is really smart, smarter than we've ever had before. Don't get me wrong. And, but it's sure. still something that's, that's a tool. So don't you know, use it as a tool. Use it as a tool to grow your business. Um, I think that also as as businesses try to leverage these chatbots in their own apps, there's a lot of work to be done. You know, you have to build lots and lots of infrastructure and software. You have to make sure that you keep your indexes up to date. You have to make sure that a lot of stuff happens. And so if you think it's easy to get started, you can take one engineer and start building something on the weekend, you might be done. But to actually productize that, it's going to take a real investment. And so the risk, another risk I see is businesses try to approach this as a side project, but in reality, they need to invest in this early and often to build something that, that actually is helpful and valuable. Yeah, I like that. Uh, what skills should somebody be developing or, or thinking about, uh, particularly as, as leaders, in, in order to you know, leverage models like this to, to make sure that they're not irrelevant in the future, keep up to date, and, and maybe even ahead? Yeah, it's part of a big question that people have been asking, like, hey, are, is, is AI going to take my job? And I've been hearing, I've been working in the world of AI for a while now, and I keep hearing this. Um, I think the people who are going to do the best are those who learn how to use AI to do their jobs better. Sure, it might take a couple of jobs, but I think that that's a little bit overblown. So for example, I've had a couple of folks who I follow who are copywriters. And a few months ago, they said, oh, man, I just lost all my clients because clients are going with AI. And then a few months later, they're like, well, I got 90% of them back plus right. five new clients because <laughs> the AI sucks, right? So, you know, you can start to learn how these things work. You don't need to be technical. You can start to do things like just ask it questions or help it plan an itinerary for you. Just learn how they work. Anybody can do that. I did that when I first started using it. And then you can start to apply it for your job. I'm a developer, a software engineer, so I use it a lot to help me write code. Uh, it does some things that I couldn't do but that's maybe 5% of the time, right? Most of the time I'm doing a lot more by using my own knowledge plus AI as a tool than either AI or I can do alone. And that can be applied to anybody. It can be applied to accountants. It can be applied to lawyers. It can be applied to anybody who has to make intelligent decisions or look up information or search through a lot of materials. It's one of those things where once you start knowing how the tool works and what it can do, you can start to incorporate it into your own job to make yourself better, faster, stronger. And so it's really just a matter of start using it, uh, start using it and see how you can use it in different ways as you get familiar with it. Well, as a founder at technical background, how has it been in you know, leading an organization 
and and doing that a couple of times now. I mean, you had Aptio before. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how has that transition been, and what have been the things that have made you successful? You know, the hardest thing about anything is is people, right? Managing different types of people, yeah. learning how they communicate. I have made plenty of mistakes there. Uh, but I've tried to get better. You know, I try to learn how people work. I try to set expectations early. I try to document and write down everything so that there's no confusion. So I think the, the first thing I've learned is be clear and over-communicate, over-communicate as much as you can with people. And when I don't do that, that's when I get into trouble. So that's sort of the first lesson when it comes to organizational management. I think another thing that I've learned is being um, clear about what's your North Star metric. Like, what is it that you as a company need to achieve? in order to get to the next level or see the next thing. Like what is your immediate goal? Is it to understand the market? Is it to understand the problems people are having? Is it to generate revenue? It's different for different stages of companies. I tend to, I tend to work in earlier stage companies where most of my work goes into figuring out, is there really a problem here that needs to be solved? Is that problem big enough? And once you figure that out, you then have to be good enough to learn how to transition to the next stage, which is, okay, how do we sell and how do we prove that our product is solving the problem. And so when it, when it comes to early stage companies, knowing what stage you're in, making sure you're focused on that stage, making sure you're communicating what that stage is to everybody and everyone's focusing on that stage, and then knowing how to transition to the next stage. These are all sort of things I've made mistakes with in the past, but I'm sort of getting better with and focusing on, on more. Um, but it really comes down to the people, you know, understanding the folks that you're working with, understanding what drives them, understanding what motivates them, and then understanding yourself so that you can communicate with them better. I love that. Love that. What's been the greatest lesson that you've learned uh, along the way on your journey? Yeah, there's been so many. All right, <laughs> you can have more than one. No, you know what? I'll, I'll say this. Um, for me, I deal with early stage companies. And the thing I've learned about is that there has to be a reason you're doing what you're doing, um, especially in startup life. Because if you have to get up every day and do the same thing and deal with the same challenge, like lots and lots of challenges as a startup founder and you don't have a driving passion or you don't have a reason for, for like building your company or you're not enthralled by some particular thing you're doing, then you're going to burn out and you're going to quit. And that's sort of the number one, uh, you know, they say that startups don't die. They say that founders quit. And so you just have to have a reason for doing what you're doing. You have to know yourself really well. And if you find yourself doing something that doesn't resonate with you, then stop doing it and switch to what, what does make sense. Sometimes you might not know. Sometimes it might take a journey to figure out, hey, I really enjoy doing this or I really don't enjoy doing this. But go through that journey, figure it out, figure out the why behind what you're doing. Because once you have that, you're, you're going to be able to double down and work really hard and out-hustle a lot of other people who, don't figure, who haven't figured out the why. So that's my biggest learning so far. Oh, that's really, really good. Uh, any advice, anything that you, you know, wish you had known at the beginning that, uh, that you do now or advice for other founders? You know, maybe in the you yeah, know, 1 to 10, I'll, 15, $20 million range. I think that um, don't spend too much money before you have product market fit. That's one of the biggest things mm, I've learned. You know, you don't need to raise yet. Yeah, you don't need to raise VC money to build a product. You can sort of do it very cheap and get your first customers just by reaching out to them. So that's one thing I've learned. Second thing I've learned is team is really important. The first five, 10 people you work with make or break your company. You want to make sure you've got people who you can work with really well, but have diverse skill sets from yourself so that everybody's doing something con- that contributes to the success of the company. Um, and it doesn't stop like after you get a million in ARR or 5 million, you need to keep building a diverse team that that's always executing. And, you know, to work at a startup 
kind of have to be a little bit crazy. So you got to find those crazy people and those people who really want to execute. Um, find, you know, product isn't always everything, right? Like I wish I had built a really good product before, but I didn't know how to sell it or market it. And so then this sort of, we stalled out. So think about doing sales and marketing as early as possible. Try to get customers as early as possible. If not customers, try to get customer development partners who sign an LOI that say, if you build this, I will pay for it. Uh, prove out all of your risks and assumptions as early as possible. Uh, now let's say you're a little bit further, five or 10 million along. Then I think that the problem is how do you grow efficiently without spending a bunch of money? So if you haven't figured out a go-to-market channel that's working really well, you probably want to do that. If you still have like 30 different things you're trying, you probably want to narrow it down and focus and focus and focus and focus. That's sort of what I would say. Uh, some of my top of mind lessons are right now. Oh, that's really, really good. Uh, thinking about uh, you know, AI, there's been some news articles and some concern about bias and fairness. Um, if you're looking at, at ChatGPT or using it in your organization um, and you know, particularly training, deploying it uh, with your own data, how are ways that you can minimize that bias and avoid perpetuating kind of existing social inequalities? Yeah, if you think about it, a lot of the biases you know you're hearing about in the media come from the the data set you're using for training a model. That data set might be biased because of the nature of your business. Maybe you are selling sneakers and you only sell sneakers to a particular type of person, or maybe you only have customers who are in a particular zip code and you over-index to that zip code, or maybe you have photos or images that only have people of a certain race or ethnicity. You kind of have to know this stuff and you have to be able to say, what sort of data do we have? If there is a bias introduced, what are the uh, inequities that are going to be caused? Is it a big enough problem for us to try to solve that now? Uh, or do we worry about that later? So you, as a data scientist, in conjunction with your legal team and your leadership and your marketing team need to understand what is it we're trying to do here? What's the likelihood that our data will introduce bias into a custom developed model? And if, that, if that's a big enough problem, how do we solve it? So it really takes a lot of, uh, of purpose-based examination of the data you have and the objective you're trying to achieve before you start something. Uh, that's the best way to do it. There's no better way right now. And I'm sure there are going to be better ways to do it. I'm sure people are going to come up with automated ways to say, well, your data is 80% biased to this or that. But right now it just starts with the people who are building these systems. Sure. Sure. Well, it's looking for pattern recognition. And so when exactly. it recognizes those patterns, then, Hey, this works. So we're going to do more of that. In a certain sense, machine learning is as unbiased as it gets because it will find the patterns that are, that are there. But if you're giving it bad patterns or you're giving it biased patterns or you're giving it patterns that only look at, you know, for example, people who are incarcerated from one particular ethnicity or race or whatever it is, if you're giving it bad data and bad patterns, it's going to learn those patterns. Now, you have to be careful about generalizing those patterns to larger areas where the training data set did not include, you know, other things that you didn't give it. Sure. And I think that's important to be working with somebody that is a data scientist that can help guide that process in, in building the model. Models don't build yeah. themselves. It's true. That's true. You <laughs> got to work with the data scientist. Like data scientists play a lot of good roles in these types of projects. So it's, a, it's important to include them and make sure they understand the goals of the project and what needs to be done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, where can people learn more about you and about Locusive online? You know, I, I do a lot of stuff on LinkedIn. So if you yes. want to follow me, I'm, you know, I, yeah. <laughs> Everybody should follow. Good, good content. <laughs> Appreciate that. It takes a lot of effort for me to push out the content. So I, I focus heavily on LinkedIn. I'm Shanif Danani. 
You can also find me at Twitter, uh, at Shanif. But for Locusive, we're at locusive.com. I'm Shanif at locusive.com. Always happy to help answer questions if anybody has any. I find this stuff really fascinating. I'm really just trying to see if I can help companies with with my background and skill set. And yeah, if you think I can help, feel free to reach out. That's awesome. Well, Shanif, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Jeff. Awesome questions. I appreciated the time. Thanks again, Shanif, for coming on the show and sharing your journey and insights. Up to the minute updates on AI and really practical ways to use it with our own data. Pretty cool stuff. You can learn more about Shanif and Locusive at locusive.com. All links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. So please subscribe and follow us there and at YouTube as well. Everyone who subscribes this week gets a DIY treasure chest. But you're going to have to find your own deserted island and make a complicated, crazy map to hide it. But do it well and you might even get your own TV show. Join us Thursday on our SaaS Fuel Expert Series, where my guest is Martin Huntbach, award-winning marketer, best-selling author, and director of Jammy Digital, where he and partner Lindsay help SaaS companies find and retain customers who become super fans. That's pretty cool. Are, are you a super fan? I, I don't know, box fan? Is, is there a fan in your room? Well, that all counts. You're in. If you're a super fan, message me. And then next Tuesday, our founder is Omar Jordan. He's the founder and CEO of Coviance, formerly LenderClose. It's a fintech company that is making the home equity lending process simpler, faster, and more scalable via SaaS. It's an insightful conversation on bringing a legacy industry into the 21st century. Great time. Well, I will see you next time. And as always, enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to SaaS Fuel full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.